take your copy of God's Word or one of the few Bibles in front of you and turn to the Gospel of Luke once again to chapter 15. Uh, we're going to cover all of Luke 15 today, at least as best as we can. Um, in Luke 15, there are three parables, and each of them deal with something that is lost and found. Uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. I wonder why I put that in the plural, because we usually think of the prodigal son as the focus of the story, but the prodigal son, that parable is really the story of two lost sons, and we'll think a little bit about that this morning. But we want to see what Jesus is teaching us in these parables about what God is like and what we should do as a result. Uh, before we read this chapter together, though, let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we know that you are pleased. In fact, you delight to do supernatural work through ordinary means. And so here I am, a, a sinner, standing before your word. And here we are, a group of sinners sitting with your word in our laps. And we pray now that the Holy Spirit would do a powerful work in all of our hearts as your word is read and proclaimed. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's hear this portion of God's word in Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. 
And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. (coughs) I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost. And is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And called one of the servants and asked. What these things meant. And he said to him. Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf. Because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, we want to ask and try to answer three questions today. What is the context of these parables? What do these parables teach us about God? Third, what should we do as a result? So first, what is the context of these parables? When you read the Bible, the first question you ask should not be, where am I in this passage? Or what does this passage have to say about me? Or how does this passage make me feel? And then let your imagination go on the run. The first question you should be asking is, what is the meaning of this passage in context. And (coughs) Luke is very helpful in this regard, especially with the parables of Jesus, because he often often gives you a sort of thesis statement, a, a sort of introduction to why Jesus taught a certain parable on a certain occasion. And so, for example, if you go back to Luke chapter 14 and And verse 7, you remember when Jesus was invited to that dinner party and he's watching all of these folks vie for positions of honor, trying to take seats of honor. Jesus watches all of this and says to them, I I need to tell you a parable about what true honor looks like. 
You go ahead a few chapters to Luke chapter 18 and, and verse 1. And we read, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Those are, uh, pastors love those kind of verses, especially for sermon prep. You know, you're, you're diving in Monday morning. Okay, what's the point of this passage? Or what should the point of the sermon be? Well, the point of the sermon should be the point of the text. And, and Luke tells us here that Jesus told the parable of the persistent widow in order that we might not lose heart in prayer. And so it is with these three parables in Luke chapter 15. And Luke gives us the context in verse 1. These, uh, these tax collectors and sinners are, are coming to Jesus, drawing near to Jesus. And Jesus is receiving them. And he's actually sitting down and eating with them. And you have Pharisees and scribes grumbling about it. Now let's think a little bit about this context so that we make sure we understand it. The Pharisees were, uh, well, they, they, weren't, uh, they weren't clergy. They weren't, they weren't a part of the priestly order. They were lay leaders. Uh, people who took the Bible very seriously. These were your stalwart conservatives. These were the guys who wanted to live by the book. But they added their own human traditions and they often proved to be quite grumpy and critical of others. And the scribes, so these, are the, these are the scholarly sorts, the, the, the professors, those trained in theology. You know, these, are the, these are the guys you want to take your, your questions to because they're the experts. What's the meaning of this passage? And the Pharisees and the scribes together are grumbling about Jesus spending time with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, sinners, it's a, <coughs> it's a general term referring to people who are, are not living within the parameters of the law of Moses. Uh, uh, living what they would deem to be unclean lives. They are not living as faithful Israelites. And tax collectors, well, let's take a moment to, to understand and appreciate this. Tax collectors are probably not very popular in any society, but they were particularly despised in the first century in, uh, in Galilee. Um, and, and the reason for that is uh, the, the Jewish people were functionally a, a vassal state of the Roman Empire at this time, you know, living under the thumb of the Roman regime. And the Roman Empire did not collect taxes themselves. Instead, they would hold a, a, a bidding process. So let's say you live within the region of Galilee and you aspire to collect taxes for Rome. What you would do is you would submit your bid to Rome and say, I will give uh, a million dollars. Okay, they didn't have dollars. Let's, let's just go with our currency here. They, they'd say, I, I, somebody would say, I, I will give Rome a million dollars if I get this job to collect taxes. And they would have to pay that fee up front. And so the person who submitted the highest bid would then be hired uh, by the powers that be to collect taxes in their region. And they were backed by the authority of Rome. Now, the problem was not 
uh, that it's evil to collect taxes. The, the problem was that there were virtually no laws to keep these guys in check. They could basically do whatever they wanted. They could set up a tax booth along a highway and implement a travel tax and assess the goods that you were transporting and basically hike up the tax rate to whatever they wanted it to be, meet their quota, send what they needed to to Rome, and then fill their own pockets. In the eyes of the culture, these were the most despicable, deceitful men in society, uh, despised by uh, the Jewish people. Uh, actually, uh, a couple hundred years after Jesus, the Mishnah says in, in one breath, uh, thieves, robbers, and tax collectors, as if they're equivalents. Uh, rabbis taught that if a tax collector came into your home, your house was unclean. Nobody, nobody at this time was hoping that their little Johnny or Micah or Daniel or whatever one day would grow up to be a tax collector. In fact, uh, the, the liberal and conservative rabbis in Jesus' day were agreed in saying it's okay to tell a bold-faced lie to a tax collector. Nothing like a tax collector to bring people together, I guess. Okay, so I hope, I hope you can begin to understand the, the scandal it would have been for Jesus to be sitting down with sinners and tax collectors. And here are these Pharisees and scribes, and they're grumbling because these aren't the sort of people that the Messiah should be spending his time with, as he claims to be. Um, and so you have the religious conservatives and the religious scholars of Jesus' day grumbling about who Jesus spends his time with. That's the context of Luke 15. Now let's go to the second question. What do we learn about God from these parables? Two things. First thing is that our God seeks out lost sinners. We see this in all three parables, first with the shepherd, uh, something like the Isaiah 40 passage where you have the, the shepherd who seeks after his sheep and gathers them tenderly in his arms and brings them to a place of safety. That same shepherd goes out looking for the one lost sheep and brings it back to a place of safety. You have this woman who sweeps through her entire home to find the one lost coin. The parables are saying God is like that shepherd. God is like that woman. God is like this father who pursues both of his lost sons. This is the sort of God we have, dear friends. A God who seeks out lost sinners. We see this revealed in Jesus' own mission in Luke 5.29. <clears throat> I've come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And in Luke chapter 10, or 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. So the mission of Jesus and the mission of the church commissioned by Jesus to carry out the great commission, it's not to make people a lot nicer. It's not to form nice little social clubs in our community. It's not to promote a particular political agenda. 
The mission of the church is to reach lost people with the gospel. And insofar as we are not doing that, we are not carrying out the mission Jesus has called us to. But you know, that category of lostness, that category of lostness, it's not very popular today. So, you know, people invent different categories. Today we speak about the unchurched and the de-churched, and that's fine, but here's a biblical category for you, lost. And some of you here today might be lost. And it takes a great deal of humility to recognize that you are lost. But in the economy of God's salvation, in the way that God works salvation in the lives of lost people, Actually, recognizing your lostness is the turning point of being found. And and so, dear friends, this is the first thing we learn about God. Our God seeks lost sinners. Here's the second thing. Our God not only seeks lost sinners, he rejoices when they are found. This is the singular point in contrast to the grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes. The gladness of God. The rejoicing of God. Verse 7. Just so I tell you. There will be more joy in heaven. Over one sinner who repents. Over 99 righteous persons. Who need no repentance. Verse 10. Just so I tell you. There is joy before the angels of God. Over one sinner who repents. And then at the end in verse 32. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead. And is alive. He was lost. And is found. God rejoices in repentance and restoration. He loves it. He he delights in it. So that raises a question, at least. What's so great about repentance? There is a kind of worldly grief and worldly sorrow and repentance that a lot of people experience, and there is a godly sorrow and a godly repentance that people experience experienced by God's grace. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He talks about godly or worldly grief and worldly repentance. It's the kind of thing we see when a person does something and they regret it because of the consequences. They, they regret it because of what it's going to mean for their lives, their reputation, the, the, the temporal consequences. But when it comes to Godly grief that leads to repentance. There is this vertical dimension that is at the heart of it. That you are grieved because your sin is first and foremost against God. And it's not just saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm sorry if I made you feel that way. And friends, if, if, your, if your repentance to God or to your fellow man is qualified by an if or a but, it's probably not a real confession. Just put that on the table. Uh, This is real repentance we see here in Luke 15. The son returning to his father and casting himself upon the mercy, the sheer mercy of his father saying, I have no claim here. I deserve Nothing from your hand. But I'm entrusting my life into your hands. Be gracious to me because I want 
I've realized the folly of my ways. I want your ways, not my ways. He owns his sin. He owns his folly and looks to his father for everything he lacks. You see, I think we should say that real repentance is a sweet and precious and sadly, I think, a rare work of God at times. And if God is bringing you to that, though, whether, whether you've never trusted in Christ or you are a Christian, but God is exposing your sin, then we need to say that is a great grace to you because it's intended <coughs> by God to lead you back to God so that you say, not my ways, not my will, but your ways and your will be done. You know, the Puritans used to speak about repentance as the vomit of the soul. Why do they speak that way? It's because the, the Puritans, well, let me put it this way. I think one of the great tricks of the evil one is to convince us that repentance is easy. Right? I, can, I can go on living this way, pursuing this path, doing these things, and, and someday I'll make up for it. Someday I'll acknowledge it and say I'm, I'm sorry. And uh, the Puritans remind us, no, repentance isn't that easy. Repentance is a hard work. So much so that they call it the vomit of the soul. I mean, here, 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 uh, here, I can't talk. Who here likes to throw up? <laughs> Nobody. It's unpleasant. It's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's painful. And the Puritans are saying, that's, that's what true repentance is often like. And if perhaps you know someone or it's you and you think, well, Jared, you don't, you don't really know the things I've done. You don't know the sort of sin that I've committed. You don't know the deep depravity that I'm caught up in. You don't know the sin that has its tentacles wrapped around me. Because if you did, you'd understand that I am not fit to come to God. If you understood the shameful things that I'm guilty of, if, the, if you understood the double life that I've been living, you'd understand that there is nothing commendable in me. There's nothing in me to commend myself to God. Friend, I want to say to you, if that's what you believe, that might actually be the most commendable thing about you. If you've come to the point of understanding that there is nothing in us to commend ourselves to God, and the basis of the gospel is that the only qualification that we meet in order to come to God for grace is the recognition that there is nothing in us to commend ourselves to God. And once again, if that's where you are, my friends, you are at a turning point. And the Lord is seeking you out. And do you see from Luke 15, God would not reject you, but rejoice in your repentance. Luke 15 reveals a God who is not a reluctant Savior. He seeks lost sinners and rejoices in their salvation. <laughs> this is the great theme of Luke 15. That uh, there is rejoicing every time a sinner repents. Heaven's courts are filled 
with sounds of rejoicing. You know, Michael is not elbowing Gabriel and saying, oh, another sinner is repenting. Get out the trumpet. That was kind of louder than I thought. Sorry. The angels in heaven do the Father's will. And when a sinner repents, the angels rejoice because our God rejoices every time a sinner repents. It's overflowing, exuberant joy. You know, when, you, when you repent, there is, let's put it, there, there's a parade in heaven. Get out, get out the balloons, drop the confetti, strike up the band, start dancing because another sinner has returned home. And this is why, as Christians, we talk about sin. Or at least it ought to be why we talk about sin. To lead us to the seeking and saving God and the surpassing joy of heaven. That's what we, I think, are meant to learn from Luke 15 about God. He is a God who seeks the lost and he is a God who rejoices when sinners are found. So let's ask the third question. Okay, what do we do as a result? Three things here. First, let us learn from Jesus the need for relationship and repentance. Thinking here a little bit about evangelism and outreach. I think it's right to say that people tend to be good at one or the other. You know, so maybe, maybe you're a person who is good at striking up a relationship and having a relationship with someone who's not like you. And maybe you've been praying for some time, Lord, show me a, a, door, <coughs> a door of opportunity to talk to this person about repentance, to talk to this person about Christ. And, you know, 20 years have gone by. And, you know, the, the, the reality is opportunities have come and gone, and we lack the guts to speak about the hard things. Or maybe, maybe you're on the other extreme, and you don't really care a whole lot about relationships. You're just eager to talk to a person about repentance. Hello, nice to meet you. Did you know that unless you repent, you're going to go to hell? Okay, I actually had someone say that to me at the ethnic fest in Johnstown. Those very words, that's why I said that. Someone walked up to me and said, you know, unless you repent, you are going to burn in hell. And I wanted to slap him across the face, but I didn't. I didn't. Um, I quietly walked away. Uh, but what, what do we see here with Jesus? Relationship, yes. Repentance, yes. We have Jesus welcoming sinners and tax collectors, even sharing table fellowship with them. And we'd be mistaken if we think this is an example of cheap grace. He's not excusing whatever sin they might have been doing. I think we ought to see a passage like this in light of a passage like John 4, when Jesus is with the adulterous woman and he seeks her out and he engages her and he's willing to have a conversation with her. And beyond that, he shows her grace. He points her to the living water. And by the end of the conversation, what's Jesus saying? Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. And, and here we are, I think, uh, we need to see in, in Luke 15... Jesus not excusing whatever sin they were doing, nor did Jesus apologize for trying to get on the inside with outsiders. You know, what kind of doctor refuses to see patients? 
What kind of farmer refuses to get his hands dirty? And what kind of church doesn't have a place for the lost? Sometimes people say, uh, maybe you've heard something like this. I don't like the church because the church is full of hypocrites. Have you ever heard something like that? And I get it. Sometimes I I, I track with that in, in a way. But when people say that to me, I have at least two thoughts that run through my mind. And the first thing I should never say and the second thing I should say. Let me, let me tell you the first thing I should never say, okay, so that you don't ever say it. But when somebody says, I, 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 don't, I don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites, the first thought that runs through my mind is, oh boy, you should, you should join us then because you'd fit right in. <laughs> I don't say that though. Um, what I think we should say is, you know, actually you don't know the half of it. Uh, if, if you knew the kind of sin that we struggled with, if you knew the heart struggles that people at Trinity Presbyterian Church have, if you knew the kind of temptation that folks here at Trinity have to battle day by day and week by week, if you knew the kind of things people have been going through, if you knew the kind of struggles that their own pastor has to fight against, oh, well then you'd recognize that we are a bunch of sinners. And if you think you are that, then you you ought to come along because you'd fit right in. Because the thing that brings us together is the shared recognition that we are a bunch of lost sinners who have been found by a gracious God. And we need to repent. And we need to repent every day and look to Jesus. That's what we should say, I think. You know, Christ had these relationships with sinners, so much so that he, he, you remember one of the titles, you know, one of the actually uh, insults hurled at Jesus, he is a friend of what? Tax collectors, gluttons, drunkards, and Jesus owned that, and he didn't deny that. Christ had relationships, but it led to repentance. He wasn't He wasn't calling sinners to himself and then saying, well, just remain the same. He wasn't calling them to some kind of worldly authenticity. Come and follow me and you can continue to follow your own desires and follow your heart because that's all that matters. No, Jesus understood that the problem was their heart. The problem was the desires of their heart. The fact that they needed a new heart. Jesus wasn't passive, though, waiting for people to come to him. But neither was he passive about confronting sin. So note this about our Lord Jesus. I think it's right to say that there is no one in the history of the world that was more inclusive of repentant sinners and at the same time no one more intolerant of sin. No one in the history of the world who was more inclusive of, un, or of repentant sinners and less tolerant of sin. And to be like Jesus, we, we need a heart like his, a desire for relationships and the guts to talk about repentance. Here's the second thing we, we need to do. Uh, let our, this will be a short one. Let our, let our lives and our church be marked by joyful celebration. Because a God who seeks and saves lost sinners leads to joy. 
joy. I think some of us need to ask ourselves, when was the last time I experienced and expressed joy? Remember the prayer of David in Psalm 51, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. A sinner saved fills heaven with rejoicing and the church on earth ought to reflect the joy of heaven as a community of lost sinners who have been found by God. The church gathered. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say this. I think the church gathered ought to be the happiest community on the face of the earth. Not not a kind of uh, superficial, shallow, glib, happy, clappy joy. Frankly, that's an abomination. But the happiest place where where forgiven sinners worship their forgiven God and forgiving God and celebrate the fact that though they have no claim to an inheritance, they have received a full inheritance in Christ Jesus. So let's remember that God is radically committed to joy. Uh, He rejoices when a sinner is saved. (coughs) And so, dear friends, if, if... Don't don't misunderstand me. There there are times where our lives will be marked by lament. And Christian worship ought to involve lament because if we are not lamenting, we are silencing half of the congregation in their current circumstances and we are giving a false understanding of the Christian life. But if, as a pattern of life, our heads are hung low, And we go about day by day complaining about our jobs, complaining about our circumstances and how difficult things are. What we are really saying is that those circumstances are greater than the salvation that we have received in Christ. None of us want to say that. So let's walk around with our heads held high, filled with joy because of the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. Let our church and our lives be marked by this experience and expression of Christian joy. Okay, here's the third thing. Let us expect that God will seek and find all kinds of lost people. We're going to look at the parable of the prodigal, I think, a little bit more next Sunday. But as I said at the start, this is really the parable of two lost sons. Both are lost, both are sought out by a gracious father. So the parable of the the prodigal, it's really the parable of of two lost sons, but we usually put (coughs) most of our focus on the younger brother, right? He, He went and he squandered his inheritance. He said to his father, in effect, give me what's coming to me. I don't want anything to do with you. You're as good as dead to me. I'm going to go out and live it up. I'm going to go out and seek pleasure. I'm going to go out and seek self-satisfaction and fulfillment in the things this world has to offer to me. And things get so bad for him eventually that he ends up off in a far country starving and working with pigs. And you understand the offense of that in the Jewish context. You couldn't find a more unclean place. And he's left wanting to eat the pig slop. the, The pods that the pigs are eating. And it was there he came to himself, the text says. 
And friends, maybe that's a picture of, of where some of you are. God has actually given you what you want. He has allowed you to pursue your desires and you are at the bottom of the barrel and you are asking the question, why on earth am I living in this slop? This is what God does in the world. He brings people who have made an absolute wreck of their lives to their senses. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Dead, dead people don't have life until God breathes life into them. And so God at that moment of, of rebirth, of regeneration, breathes life into you and you come to your senses. You say, why am I living this way? Why am I living for the weekend as if that can satisfy? And that's what happens to the prodigal. He comes to himself and he says, my father is rich beyond all imagining. Why do I not return to him? And so I wonder, do you, do you see yourself as, at all as the younger son? You know, Rembrandt, the artist, Rembrandt has a piece called The Prodigal in the Brothel. You can Google it and, and look it up. And it's a picture of a man with a woman in a brothel. But the striking thing about the piece is that it's a self-portrait of Rembrandt with his mistress. Rembrandt had sins that needed to be forgiven. And at least at this point in his life, Rembrandt was recognizing that this parable was about him. It's about many of us. You know, what, do you, what do you expect the father in this story? What do you expect the father to do when the son returns? You expect him to you know, stand, cross his arms and stand there with a stern look on his face or give his son a cold shoulder, give him a lecture about how foolish he's been. Nobody, nobody expected what Jesus said next. Here is this Jewish patriarch, uh, this incredibly wealthy and successful man. And they didn't do this kind of thing. He, he saw his son returning from afar and we were told that his heart was filled with love and compassion to the point where he couldn't just stand there and wait. He took off running for his boy. And when he got there, he wrapped his arms around him and with tears flowing, began kissing his son, celebrating that his long lost son had finally come home. See, this is the kind of God that we have, dear friends, a God who seeks prodigal sons. But some of us may be more like the older brother type. You know, put together. Things have just kind of gone our way. You know, it's been easy for us to at least outwardly <coughs> keep the social standards. But you see, here's the sting in the tail of this parable. The sting in the tail is that the older brother needs God's grace just as much as the younger brother. See what happens in verse 28. The father celebrates the return of the younger son. The older brother is so angry, he refused to go in and celebrate with everyone. 
The older brother, he has spent his whole life as an insider, behaving, doing what dad asked for. He's stuck with the covenant community. He's always done what was socially right. And now because his younger brother has received grace. Oh, you see, he's offended by grace. And now he's literally on the outside looking in because of his hardness of heart. But here again is where we are shocked because notice how the father treats him. Just as the father sought out the prodigal, it is the father, not the elder brother, who takes the initiative. So we see in verse 26, while he's busy, you know, sulking outside, refusing to celebrate, his father came out to him <laughs> and entreated him. And he began to reason with him. You see, we, we need to understand God seeks out bad sons and quote-unquote good sons. Verse 31, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He is lost and is found. You see, he comes to both of them with the same message. That your status, your significance has nothing to do with how good you've been. When the younger son starts begging to be treated like a slave instead of a son, did you read, read the passage closely. As he's, as he's begging for the mercy of even being treated like a son, his father is hugging him and kissing him and weeping tears of joy. And it's almost as though the father is speaking over his son. While the son is making this request, the father is saying, put on him my best robe. Put, put on one of my rings onto his grubby, filthy hands. Put on a new pair of shoes. And when the older son is outside pouting, the father goes to him with the same message of grace. Son, your share in my inheritance isn't earned. It's freely given. If you will have it, if you will take it. And so our God is a God who seeks out all kinds of lost people. So let's bring it back to the church for a second. Are you and I prepared to seek out all kinds of lost people? I, again, I think, I think there can be an imbalance here. Some of us are happy to have prodigals in the church. You know, they make for great stories. We love to hear their testimonies. And that's true. But the chances are, if you see yourself as a prodigal, if you identify with the prodigal son, you might have a hard time with the older brother types. Their lives, you know, they're squeaky clean. They've got it all together. Things have just always seemed to go their way. And you actually end up despising them for their put togetherness because your life has been such a mess. But some of us go, go the other way. Some of us are the older brother sort and we look down on the prodigals. Uh, you know, we, 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 those, those prodigals, they're such a mess and they're just such a pain to be around. And the question I want to ask you, dear friends, is can, can we be a church that seeks both? And the answer has to be yes. Because our God is a God who seeks out both. Now, friends, as, as we come to, to come to a close, I think we need to come back to this parable next week. We'll see. I'm not fully committed to it yet. But as we come to a close this morning, did you notice that this, this parable ends? 
it, with it, it's open-ended. It doesn't really have an ending. And, and I think that's intentional because it's leading us to ask the question, okay, what, what do I do with this story of God's lavish mercy where he seeks out all kinds of lost people? And might there be some among us here today who are older or younger brothers? We heard it in the assurance of pardon this morning in John chapter 10. Jesus says that he is, <coughs> he is the good shepherd. And his sheep hear his voice. Maybe that's some of you today. That there was something by the ministry of the spirit. There was something in the message where you actually came to yourself and thought. What on earth am I doing why am I living in this pigsty? Or maybe, oh, I'm the older brother. Why am I standing out here in the dark? And it's the voice of the good shepherd that you are hearing and you need to respond. Or perhaps, perhaps you are a Christian and you're, you're hearing that voice of your Savior again and you're reminded of, of sin that you've kept hidden, sin that you've kept in the dark, you've kept to yourself. You've not owned up to it. And God is calling you to repent. And to know the joy of repentance. Because if we do not come. It will not be because God did not seek. But because we were not lost enough to think that we needed to be found. And because we did not see our situation as desperate enough to need help. We did not see ourselves as sinful enough to be to need salvation. May we hear the voice of the Good Shepherd today and respond in faith and repentance. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we recognize that it is such a privilege to be able to call God our Father because of your work for us in the gospel. And Lord, <clears throat> we pray that. By your spirit, you would show us our sin and lead us to repentance in order that we might come home and come inside and celebrate the joy of salvation. We pray these things in your name. Amen.